Welcome to the Southwest Climate Podcast, early April edition. I'm here as always with the, I used to say this before, the indomitable Mike Crimmins. And I think it takes on new meaning now because- Did you, you know, say abdominal? No. No. In, indomitable. Oh, okay. Because you've, you've, you've suffered through the unexpectedly dry winter and you've taken it hard. I think you've actually gained some gray hairs in your beard. Some gray hairs. Yeah. Tried some new drinks. That's right. But thanks to all those tuning in again for this uh, edition of the Southwest Climate Podcast. As always, we're going to be diving into the nuances of the climate here in the Southwest with a particular focus on, uh, I sort of hesitate to say it, El Nino, uh, because that is the topic du jour. And normally in most seasons, we wouldn't necessarily be talking about El Nino, but we continue to talk about it. I'll never talk about April, it again. Heading into April. But Zach, I still remind you, you were you were pretty down on this El Nino from the beginning. Are you feeling a little smug? For those that don't know, we collectively had bets on what the percent of precipitation was going to be between November 1st and, and April. April 30th. And it ran the spectrum. There were six of us. I think that the highest percentage, what, was 250%? Somebody did. Yeah. 250%, which that never happens, by the way. In, it could happen. See, has it ever happened? No, it's never happened, but <laughs> but it could happen. Yeah, so that there was a lack of attention to uh, historical records on that one, but I had the lowest value at 88% of average. I scoffed at that number. What are we number? right now? Probably 75%. 75% of average. For that period, November to That's now pathetic. for Tucson. It is pathetic, and that was why I thought you were pathetic in actually writing that number down. What did you... What did you uh, 175. 175. Did you see how much hope and promise I saw in this event at that point in time? Okay. So yes, I am feeling smug. And maybe I, you know, I, I think my estimate though was more reactionary than it was like prophetic. <laughs> I, I just wanted to like pick something. You know, I, I was know. like the sort of price is right sort of scenario. You were. Yeah. I think, yeah. Like somebody should have done 87 on you. So right now come what? April, early April. We're in early April. Yeah. The winter for all intents and purposes is over. Now I should say that. With There's always time, Zach. Yeah. There's well, always time. So there is a forecasted event for later today into early early this weekend. Yeah, there's actually a little bit of a, a catch-up series of events. You know, there's actually four storms kind of lined up in the models from uh, today until through next week. And so interestingly, though, the models have really struggled on sort of locking onto exactly how much precip and where that precip is going to fall over the next week. So I still feel like it's pretty up in the air. It's and summer- this is not going to be a washout by any means. <laughs> what do you mean by washout? Like- you know, that we're going to have two inches of rain, okay. um, that there's going to be significant, that it's going to put me at 175. I think that, I think my 175 is out of, out of reach at this point. Yeah. So this isn't going to change the story dramatically. It's not going to change the story dramatically. Maybe we should refresh what that's what the narrative is. Yeah. What was the narrative anyways? I mean, I'll take a stab at this. That'd be you, great. Can, you can fill in the details with the very strong top three. Since 1950. Since we have 1950. To qualify. We're not yeah. talking against, you know, uh, since the time of yeah. beginning of history at this point, because our records are pretty limited. They are limited. And actually, I think that's... That's an important part of the story, probably. Yeah, that's yes. part of the overestimation of precipitation. Mm-hmm. We just didn't have a full account of the variability, but right. the narrative obviously was that with this strong event comes a greater frequency for increased precipitation. Strength matters. That was the narrative we were we were sort of operating under, looking at least, especially since the last big El Nino event, we've actually had a handful of El Nino events and many of them have been weak. 
maybe one or two have been moderate. And we kind of saw a bit of scaling with the weak events doing very little for winter precipitation, the moderates doing a little bit more. So, and, and we'd even seen in the dynamics that once you got to a big event, you'd expect to see a pretty coherent wet response for the wintertime across the Southwest. That didn't come true. No. Although, you know, depending on if you include October in your classification of the Which winter. I wish we could go back and change the whole the betting, betting window because I'd, I'd be in a little better. I would not still be in good shape. Well, uh, so if you include if you include October, basically Tucson is right around average. It depends. Yeah, it depends on where you make that cutoff point. But if you look at October first to the end of May, we're a little bit behind. I expect that we will catch up, and for the October through May period, we will probably be right at the average. Fifty percent of that precip total from October to May happened in about two weeks in October. If we remember back, October was really quite wet. And that was at the time where, remember, you know, we're all full of hope and promise and October starts off wet. And it wasn't really all that El Nino related at that point. So just looking forward, I think the expectation was that we're just going to be off to the races and it didn't quite happen that way. If you look at Tucson as 75% of the two date, today's date, uh, current totals came prior to January. Absolutely. So totally front-loaded. El Paso ended up in the first two weeks of um, October getting about almost two inches of rain. And right now they're sitting at about five inches of rain. On average from October through um, the end of May, they see about three inches of rain. Well, they got to 75% of that total of five inches. They got to that by the end of December. And it basically hasn't rained since the first week of January, they've had a couple of very small events. So we look at that seasonal total, it's almost all completely front-loaded to the to the beginning of the season. Okay, so heavily front-loaded precip this winter. There's been a dry spell between from the beginning of January, after the, the, the one event that dropped two distinct precipitation measurements, if you will, early January. From that time, Tucson had only experienced one precipitation event, two precipitation two events, precipitation excuse events. me, yeah. one on February 1 and the other March 9th. March 9th. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in between the February 1 and March 9th, 34 days. 34 days, yeah, without rain. That's, that's, a, that's a long stretch in, you know, that's not a long stretch if it were May, you know, or for April 15th to, to you know, June 1st or even, you know, uh, May to June. But Right in the middle, if we think about our, our climatological distribution of precipitation, again, we're that most of the Southwest is this bimodal, meaning, you know, it's two wet seasons. December, January, February, March are the core of the winter wet season. And so if you miss out on any events in those particular months, the, the hole is pretty big. Yeah. And to go a, basically a whole month without precip is, it's hard to do, actually, even in an arid, arid climate like we have. This isn't just an Arizona story. It's also a New Mexico story. Absolutely, yeah. For March, actually, it was record dry March. And that's out of 122 years. That's saying something. I mean, that's yeah. that's really amazing, especially for, it's not, again, a month where the bar is pretty low. It's, but that within is a the month, Southwest, yeah, that's, a, yeah. that's a, a month that we yeah. uh, tend to get that you, you tend to have your stack up. You tend to end up seeing some of those um, early spring, late winter some storms. Other, it was the ninth driest for Arizona. Mm-hmm. So. Dry so as well. definitely in the bottom. But if you look at January, February, March, it was the 27th and 11th driest three-month period out of 122 for Arizona was the 27th and New Mexico was the 11th driest. So those are pretty remarkable numbers given given the context, given the narrative that 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 was evolving. You look at that January, February, March period, there were two distinct climates that we observed in there. Think back to when we were talking about this in the fall. 
going through November and December, and it wasn't all that spectacular precipitation-wise, right? It wasn't ramping up, but, but we, we, we largely you know, chalked that up to it being early and not the core of the, the season where you'd expect to see the El Nino impacts. It was still early. We didn't have a very busy, we actually had some warm spells in November, December, a couple of events here and there, no big washouts. The northern part of the state actually did pretty well with a couple of storms and snowpack in December. Uh, and then it was New Year's, and we were looking at the next week or two of really seeing that very strong El Nino signal with those storms lining up across the Pacific Ocean, that absolutely monstrous jet stream pointed at the, the southwest. And it did its work, and we had the, that, that pretty amazing week here in uh, the southwest where those storms rolled through here, two very good precip days. Other um, stations across the southwest actually had rain every day of the week. We just had a couple of breaks in there, so, and it was cool. And then we, we started to move into the rest of January, and it was a little bit up and down. The models kept suggesting that the precip would pick up at any point in time. We ended up at the end of the month kind of looking at each other going, okay, well, February's yeah, coming. Yeah, February's going to... February will save our this. bacon, right? Yeah, and I, I said this far and wide. Um, believe me, there's evidence all over the... Uh, That's why you don't want to Google search it's my It's basically <laughs> not why. You don't want to do any fact-checking. If there was a fact-check.org on, um, on me in particular... Your I, credibility I'd, would be shot. It would, it would, yeah. I think public office is probably out of out of my reach. That's why you're not a forecaster. It's definitely, well, I'm, I'm a terrible forecaster. That's clearly clearly part of my... on my you're just talking about it with on me. On my vitae, that's right. <laughs> We have pretty low stakes here. We got that February storm, and it was a it was literally like a six hour storm. It dropped a quick shot of precip. It cooled down. It was very cool that first week of February, and didn't look very El Nino like at all. And then we we went off to the races, and then it got very very warm very very quickly. A ridge of high pressure set in, and it was basically with us for almost sixty days, um, right through February and March. Yeah, so that contributed to the. Near record warmth that the Holy Southwest yeah, experienced. I absolutely. mean, if you look at for the February and March period, nearly the entire state of Arizona is painted in temperatures that were in the upper 10th percentile. Yeah. So some the top of 10% were, of years um, with warmth, we were in that. Some areas actually experienced their record warmest. Yeah. That's actually that's actually a west-wide story. Obviously, there is a correlation between the lack of precipitation and warm temperatures because you get clear nights, clear days. You don't have as much cold air coming down from- Yeah. We um, didn't even really have any passing storms that exactly. were even dry. Yeah. We, we just had straight on um, ridge of high pressure, very, very warm conditions. And as you're saying too, it was very, very dry with respect to atmospheric moisture. If you can think back to a year ago, we were dealing with just about the opposite in the situation where we actually had um, soppy high dew points, um, moisture that got socked in the, almost all of the spring, which actually kept the overnight temps up. This year we had the exact opposite. It was very, very dry. And we actually were able to get that kind of classic desert radiational cooling. The min temperatures for much of February and March were actually pretty close to average for most locations, but the over the daytime maximum temperatures were much, much higher. Average amount, you only get something that's a little bit above average, even though the high temps were really pretty impressive. Yeah. So if you look at the just the anomaly, the, the daily temperature, the average daily temperature anomaly, just in the last month in March, the southern half of Arizona experienced temperatures, anomalous temperatures of five degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, it's a lot. It's, it's a, those are big numbers um, when you're averaging over that period of time. It's basically from the Mogollon Rim down yeah. uh, southwards. So dynamically, then, you mentioned the ridge. 
I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit how this sort of set up and what might have been its relation to the tropical Pacific and, and El Nino conditions. See, this is a, the head scratcher. I mean, I've been been tracking it and, and trying to make sense of it on my own. And, and I've been looking at a lot of the tropical meteorologists who who look at the dynamics across the whole Pacific Ocean for some pointing to what was unusual about this event relative to the past big ones. Why didn't we see even just sort of simply, why didn't we see a jet stream pattern that was similar to 19, 1998 during this period or 1983? Maybe to step back up, what would we have expected to see if it were similar to those? Typically what you see during these strong El Nino events, at least the, only the handful we have with really good observational records, is you see a really um, strong and consistent southward displaced jet stream that extends across the entire Pacific Ocean, you know, right off the coast of China, very strong, southwardly displaced, kind of pointed at the coast of Southern California. And then that that tends to steer the storms that kind of trace across the southern tier states. You saw that pretty consistently. And again, it this is climate average over months. And yeah. so you're going to have weather. So the jet stream will kind of bounce around and have waves in and that kind of stuff. But if you average it over time, it should have that pattern. So this year, the jet stream wasn't quite as... It was strong in parts and points, but it wasn't as extensive across the Pacific. It was a bit shunted. It sort of released a little bit further out into the Pacific Ocean. As part of that is this this thing we call the Aleutian Low, which is a, a stationary um, center of action of low pressure, given its namesake. It was very deep and low, but a little out of place and a little shifted north. So there was just these very little subtle, subtle changes. Yeah, that had subtle locational differences. Relatively large impacts on Huge what the precipitation pattern Yeah, so ended up, yeah, exactly. So that jet stream pattern, what it ended up doing is instead of that Aleutian low and that jet stream pattern being deep, southward displaced, it was a little shunted north and a little um, to the west. And so and instead dumping storms over us, it dumped them out into the East Pacific, and then they take this more northerly track on the on the eastward side of the Aleutian Low. So stuff gets steered to the north, and right. that's exactly what we saw. We saw, you, you heard, Seattle had its wettest winter on record, yeah. um, which is the classic La Nina outcome, um, it, not the El Nino outcome. It's as almost as if the precipitation pattern just got pushed north, right? Yeah, so it's you a, sort of had this... <clears throat> wet southern dry northern hinge line that typically is maybe around northern california is wet to the south dry to the north but that just shifted completely north so yep north of seattle there's a big dry area in 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 canada and south of that is wet so it's almost as if that whole pattern just shifted north yeah and it's it's a little bit like you said it's a it's a deflection i think issue of the whole the whole pattern instead of being straight what we call zonally along lines of latitude ends up having a little bit of a of a, a curve at a, a flick at the end which is what you end up seeing this is not it's not like we had a la nina response in the atmosphere given an el nino right it's very very el nino looking in the atmosphere across the but globe. just takes on a la nina it's, pattern at least in it, our well, area well yeah exactly Southwest. and it's la nina pattern only in the sense of the precipitation yeah. the atmospheric dynamics look very el nino they just but they have a couple of weird looks to them and they're subtle enough that they just steer the storm tracks right. persistently just a little out of phase away from us. And it did that enough. And again, you think about El Nino is a strong um, stationary disturbance, right? It's a basically, you can see this, it's a, it creates an atmospheric wave in the atmosphere, a standing wave in the atmosphere. So it's constantly pushing the atmosphere in some way. So the fact that it did this it caused that pattern to persist, mm-hmm. which is the issue is that 
whatever it did, it created this pattern and it locked on this pattern. It couldn't get out of this pattern. And so that's why you had to end up having this persistence. So if you were in a winning spot, you continued to win. If you were in a losing spot, you continued to lose. Well, and that's really the theory behind what we would have expected when we exactly came into but this. This is not as though we had all just gone on the statistics of the past events and said, well, they lean in this direction. Hopefully the dynamics will follow. The dynamical models, they're big global mathematical models. Some of them are run several times a day out for months. Um, they're done by different modeling groups across the whole world. And we combine them together in what we call multi-model ensembles. We actually take all of their output and average them together. The multi-model ensembles were very, very bullish in suggesting a pretty classic El Nino response, which was a wet Southwest and a dry Pacific Northwest. And it wasn't as though that mo that forecast was made in November and we just let it run out. It was it was updated like every day and it kept pointing to a wet pattern and what we would see is a dry. And then it would we'd update it, it still suggests wet. And then so we, you know, as you're led along through the whole season thinking that, well, at any moment it's gonna catch back up and it'll flip. And it, it never did. So you can go back and look at what we call skill scores or anomaly correlations. These are just the sort of telling the winnings of the models or or the losings of them they were they were really bad this year they were they were very consistently across the board suggesting precipitation patterns and the exact opposite was happening it, all it's suggesting is is that the models weren't just wrong they were wrong out of phase they went very bullish with wet in some locations and it turned out dry very dry with locations that turn out wet. It's not like they made a weak forecast and then something else just happened. It was that they were very confident in one outcome and the exact opposite happens. More often than not, the the skill score or the the way of uh, evaluating yeah, the, the, grades, the accuracy right. mm -hmm. tends to be slightly better than uh, not for yeah. the most part. Yeah, absolutely. This, but what this season highlights is exactly what you just said. It was it, It's just that the for some reason, the models were not seeing what actually happened. That's an area of active conversation right now. What the what heck happened? <laughs> downstream? <laughs> exactly. What caused the illusion to be slightly in a different place? I've I've read uh, people talking about perhaps the 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 area of convection in the in the tropics was slightly more to the to the Central, west. Yeah. That plopped up a bunch of heat into the atmosphere that then extended the sort of the Hadley cell and created a high pressure in a slightly different place. I mean, all of these. There's a lot of these strings that are connected. That, Absolutely. That yeah, and I, I think that we're going to find in probably in rank order, it's what you just said. It's the the position and the strength and the extent of the the thunderstorm activity. Because again, that's all El Nino is is it's moving thunderstorm activity that typically occurs in the Western Pacific to the Central Pacific and causing it to persist in that, which then you know um, makes the atmosphere. The, the jet stream in the northern hemisphere, especially, do what it's supposed to do, which is be strong and elongated and point at the point at the southwest. I think our working working thought was is that if it's big enough and strong enough, then it probably will give you the equivalent response most of the time. And we've there's some papers that have, have actually said that. I think we're going to find out it's a lot more nuanced. There's some other interesting things that were at play too down in rank order. I think it's that probably position of convection, the strength of it being to the central Pacific. The Madden-Julian oscillation was very active this year. Um, it was quite strong in waves and over time constructively and destructively interfered with El Nino. I mean, that happens during all El Nino events, but the, the magnitude of it was was actually was bigger than it was in 82 and 83. 
And then there's there's clearly this sort of long term, you know, climate change component to it too. Is going to come down in the ranks of what's which this is there sort of shifting parts of the system that we don't have track of yet. There's probably also contributions of just the overall very warm sea surface temperatures across everywhere. Yeah, like the Indian Ocean, I think <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, and the North Pacific. The North Pacific has a very decided what we would consider um, Pacific decadal oscillation, a positive Pacific decadal oscillation look to it. That's been pretty much in place for two years now. You know, thinking about the utility of these kinds of models, and yeah. and I think about this a lot. But in any given year, I mean, we know that the El Nino and the the Enso signal is the most forceful, if you will, on the climate. But it's it still only accounts for a minority fraction of the of what explains the variance. So, for example, and I, don't quote me, my gun on this. You're quoting yourself. Specific numbers. <laughs> Numbers here, but I think you know some, something on the order of the, the correlation between the, the the precipitation here in the West and and um, Enso is something like 0.6. So it explains close to 36, 40 percent of the variance. But there's still yeah yeah there's still 60 percent of that variance that's explained by other players that sure especially the ones that you mentioned. But in in the climate world, 36 percent is pretty darn no, good. No, it is. <laughs> you know, it it's is. Like, yeah. It's looking for a signal at these time scales, and you you see it in tree rings. You see it in and other sort of proxy records is clearly El Nino stands out as a dominant signal in long-term variability. But I hear what you're saying is it's, it, it's not like, oh, boom, it's El Nino and you get this. Well, that's why you have scatter in the absolutely, data. That's right. why, the, you, you know, you yeah. have below average precipitations to above average precipitation during El Nino events. So that's, that's part of what the, the, the scatter is reflecting. The narrative that we'd been sort of operating under is that when you got to strong events, you had more reliable and predictable outcomes. This year, certainly, at least for the Southwest and a lot of the continental US, you've, you looked at like the the upper Midwest, which is where I'm from. I told my family very, very confidently that this is going to be a very warm and dry winter. You, it was one of the wettest. <laughs> now your family's mocking you. Well, they've always <laughs> mocked me. That, that's never, I mean, the whole the whole enterprise of what I try to do is, is, um, is, is pretty, pretty sketchy. But they ended up having a very wet winter and a very strangely changeable and now quite cold based on other factors sort of playing out at this point in time. So I wonder though, I mean, given the fact that the analogs for very strong El Nino events are, you know, two to three, I mean, I think how many, how many really strong events are there? Five or six? Well, and again, we go back to about 1950 yeah. based on, you know, using a sea surface temperature record that we feel like can give us a, a pretty systematic and uh, coherent measure of sea surface temperatures. Other data sets go back to 1900, and there's ones that you can do reconstructions going back for it. In that 1950 to, yeah, there's probably... I, well, so I'm looking at it now. There's there's only three events that are of uh, a strength of 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius uh, above average for the O&I index here. So, but the point that I was going to make is, you know, yeah, there's there's limited numbers, but perhaps we pushed... The El Nino was so strong this year that given that we don't have a ton of analogs here, it's not like the pattern is completely out of whack, the precipitation pattern, the atmospheric uh, pressure pattern. It's not like that's completely out of whack. No, no. It, I've used this sort of, of example of trying to say, well, all the El Ninos are brothers. Two of the brothers are, they're, they're all related. But like this is the like the punk rock little brother who clearly is from the same family but wanted to have a nose ring or something like that. So th this one 
if you look at it, and we talked about this, you know, you working internationally, you, you see some pretty expected outcomes of droughts and wet conditions at different parts of the globe and some real differences as far. And, you know, the continental U.S. is where you saw, quite yeah. honestly, some of the biggest unexpected patterns come out that weren't, that weren't quite what we would have expected. Not to bring up the La Nina story here, but you're going there. Yeah, I mean, no, yeah. the, the 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 pattern, the the, the average for the last uh, the December through February basically is is right on the mark for uh, a La Nina. But we don't have to we don't have to go there. I think we already dispelled the notion that this looks at all like a La Nina. It doesn't. No, it, just, it does not. It's yeah, yeah. and that, I think that that's it, the only comparisons you can make are is that it was dry during a time of the year that typically you'd see. Alani Nisorda outcome. Right. So we had a placeholder for the fire season because mm-hmm. when we're moving in that direction, we're also moving in the, the monsoon direction, thank, thankfully. It's always my favorite time <laughs> of year. Come, can't come soon enough at this point, no. With this event that's upcoming, we could bookend yeah, yep. this winter with a couple of nice precipitation events that does impact our, our fire season. You know, yeah, we had a very long, uh, protracted dry, dry period. Mm-hmm. Snowpacks are virtually gone here. They have been gone. They may be actually replenished a little bit by this this incoming uh, event, which actually may suppress the, the the fire season a bit. You mentioned that the snowpack has crashed. So we, we had we were pretty much close to average snowpack in January with the big run. I think even a a, a little ahead uh, in January. But then once the precip shut off and the temps um, sort of raced up, the snowpack basically crashed close to zero or, you know, less than 25% of average at most of the stations by the end of February. And so then you're, you're, in, you're into March, you're now looking with typically decreasing precip chances as every week goes forward. And you then have this very long stretch to get to monsoon precip in July. And so, yeah, your fire season opens is wide open at that point. And another interesting thing you see across the state is We've had pretty good monsoons and this really interesting fall precip the last couple of years with some tropical storms and those kinds of things. What that typically does is it promotes the growth of a lot of grasses and fine mm-hmm. fuels in certain locations. And so you've got a lot of standing fine fuels all over the place from that. That's a bad situation is you grow this stuff in one season and then it dries out in the other and then it just waits to burn. So if we get this precip event, which looks like a a pretty sure thing, but I don't think there's there's no sure things in any of this. You want this, to go on the record? Oh, I've gone on the record. My record is is pretty incredible at this point. The the dynamics look pretty good. The moisture in Tucson today could be a record as far as what we call precipitable water or moisture in the the atmospheric column for this time of year. So that's that's impressive. So that that maybe dispels the whole point of it. This is in a La Nina year, you'd never you'd never see this. We'd be marching so quickly towards dry conditions, hot weather, pretty seasonally at this point. So yeah, I think that this precip event and even putting a little bit of snow down because there's now four events possibly through next week with some high elevation snows, I think could really tamp down that fire risk at least for a little bit longer. And all you're trying to do is you're trying to cut the window. Yeah. You're trying to reduce the, yeah, you're just trying to get to July 1st basically. And you're trying to wait for the atmospheric humidity to come up. So as much as you can close that window, the better, because we've already had a couple of um, low elevation fires, Breakout in Arizona, 
This event also should probably favor the upper elevations because this is going to be one that the we call orographic lifting is mm -hmm. going to be really important. And so the peaks of the mountains will probably get more rain out of this even than the valley location. So even if it dries out, it's not a big rainmaker in the valleys. I expect the mountains will pick up quite a bit more precip. Yeah, and just on that snowpack topic, for those that are paying attention to California, like currently the April 1 snowpack assessment was running at about 80% of average for the, the water equivalent in the snow. So yeah. not it's not bad. A, not bad. It's not a slam dunk, though. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a 400% of average. Right, and that's um, what, well, I don't know if 400% they were, they were expecting. I just but, like these big numbers, Zach, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> Even if they're impossible well, to well, one hundred and seventy-seven percent. Your your yeah. estimate was not like out of the realm of possibility. It was, it was yeah, four hundred percent might have been. Yeah, um, yeah. California is expected to also to see a fair amount of precipitation, more so than here in the southwest from from this event. So those numbers should go up. But yeah, I mean, Cal well, they, California will still still uh, pine for uh, wetter conditions than they got. Yeah, <laughs> I could not. Could not rain enough, could not snow enough at this point in California. This event is interesting too because it's a, a sort of a southern, what we call southern branch event, or it's on the southern branch of the jet stream. It's its kind of own subtropical jet coming in and it's coming in out of the south. So it's not like the, we've had a lot of weather events that have come inside what they basically, they come out of the Gulf of Alaska or they come off the top of the ridge and they have an inland track. And so the inland track storms, they can actually be very cold, but they're often very dry and they're very windy. This one is very different. It's actually coming right out of the Southwest and it's bringing its moisture with it. And that's coming from a much wetter trajectory. And so that, that has the opportunity then to produce pretty high snow levels, more precipitation, even thunderstorms at this point. So California, Southern California actually gets, has a chance to get some precip out of this event. The whole Northern California and up the West coast actually dries out with mm. this. So we're now back into something that you did, we would have expected to have seen a whole lot more of over the last three months. Another month goes by and we have a little bit more information to work with in terms of what the state of ENSO is, is, is going to look like going forward. Although this is the time of year where it becomes exceedingly difficult to actually forecast yeah. for the yeah. uh, upcoming fall. But you already put fall. it out there. I already I did. heard you, I heard I mean, you it, say it's it. waning. It's, yeah. it's obviously it's been waning. There's uh, way less heat in the subsurface. Mm -hmm. There's cooler anomalously cold conditions in the eastern pacific so that is signaling uh perhaps a, a more rapid onset of neutral and perhaps even slightly weak la nina conditions moving into the next next couple months there's been some blog postings and even research sort of suggests that it's a, probably a coin flip on and this is just looking historical the occurrence of a la nina after an el nino event and what is it did you say it was like half the time yeah something it's, like that. it's basically half the time the dynamical models which have done a good job of tracking the sea surface temperatures. They just haven't gotten the actual resulting precip patterns very, very well. They're, they're all pretty consistent on it. This El Nino crashing to neutral, and they're all pretty bullish on a La Nina forming for the fall. But again, it's, it's early. I think neutral to La Nina are the most likely outcomes. There's there's really no place dynamically. There's no water left, warm water left to do another El Nino event. So that's if we can rule table. out a and I'm now with at, with high degree of confidence. And, and who in cares El Nino. if it won't rain down here during an El Nino? I don't care if it's not an El Nino next year. <laughs> so what does that mean for the monsoon season? I have no idea. Yeah, I don't. Um, let's not talk about <laughs> Enso in the monsoon yeah. season. But it does suggest that next winter, if it's La Nina. 
we, you know, that is a, that's a more reliable signal for dry conditions because that's kind of what we do down here. Yeah. It's easy to do dry. Yeah. Looking at the forecast plume, the, all the sort of model runs from different uh, modeling centers, the average of it is, is calling for something on the, in the vicinity of a, of a moderate yeah. La Nina. But yeah. there's, there's a fair amount of scatter, like you said, Mike, between neutral event uh, all the way down to uh, a, a strong La Nina. Yeah. And this is not evolving like the 98 event, which was a, a crash. Like I think at that point in time, we would have been really close to a La Nina event already right now. I mean, it crashed in April and May of that year. This is much, much slower decay. Again, how all this, this seasonal climate forecasting stuff works is that a La Nina in the winter, it, it's we don't have a lot of instances of them being wet. But maybe we're in. Maybe we'll have conservation of statistics now, and we'll we'll get a, a wet La Nina to balance out our dry El Nino there. I don't think that that's a real discipline, though. Or, so I think or, I'll, or a theorem. I think I'm going to end. We should end this with a couple remarks on the, this El Nino event. There was some hope that it would end, at least for California, or it would do a significant. Uh, improvement in drought conditions that didn't happen well it did i mean it, it was not it it didn't solve a you can't solve a four-year but they've had remarkable uh, rises in a lot of the reservoirs to the point where they've spilled water um, that's true the northern flood areas flow, the northern areas but yeah. if you, but if you look across the state i mean yeah the southern didn't didn't yeah with a snowpack and water supply on the vicinity of 87 percent of what of, of average yeah Given the last three to four years of, of dry conditions, there was less improvement, way less improvement than was hoped. But the point I want to make is is that uh, we're still going to be talking about Cal- California drought. It'll still be a ma- major you know, story. Oh, I think we would have we would have talked about it. We would still have talked about it, even if this was a very typical El Nino where Arizona, New Mexico went and Southern California, because quite honestly, what we would have expected to have happened with the typical response is Northern California wouldn't have gotten any preset. They got lucky. They got lucky that this El Nino didn't turn out the way that it probably should have. Because mm. if the Southern part of the state got all that moisture, that does not build snowpack up in the Northern Sierra, which is where they needed it. I was trying to put this El Nino <laughs> in the bed. I really was. <laughs> I can't, I can't let it go. Oh my gosh. Can't um, let it go. I think we just bored people for at least 45 minutes. <laughs> at least. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in again. Um, And we'll be back in a month to bore you again with (laughs) El Nino and La Nina. And and hopefully, actually, some some talk about the, the upcoming monsoon. Sounds great. The Southwest Climate Podcast is a production of CLEMIS, which is part of NOAA's Regional Integrated Science and Assessment Program and is housed at the University of Arizona Institute of the Environment. Mike Crimmins is a principal investigator with CLEMIS, a professor of soil, water, and environmental science in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, and climate extension specialist with the University of Arizona Cooperative Extension. Zach Guido is a research scientist with the Institute of the Environment and UA program manager of the International Research and Applications Program. The podcast is edited and produced by Ben McMahon, research, outreach, and assessment specialist with CLEMIS. I'm looking at some uh, of your plots, Mike, your cool season plots that you can get on your on your website. If you Google search Mike Crimmins. <laughs> Don't Google search Mike Crimmins. <laughs> They're on the Clemus site, so the that's Clemus, probably yeah, a safer. Yeah. Maybe that's a better way to yeah. well, <laughs> we'll point everybody to the correct links. <laughs>